0: The scripture reading for this morning is from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You may be seated. Well, high in the Peruvian Andes, every year on Christmas Day, a festival takes place. Thousands of people attend from surrounding villages. There's food, there's a parade, there's singing, there's dancing, and there's fighting. The name of the festival, Takanakwe, literally means to hit each other. And that's what they do. The men and the women and the children make their way into an outdoor stadium. Some crowd into the bleachers. Others kind of form this large circle on the, uh, the, uh, the ground in the arena in the center of the stadium. And then two by two, people square off to fight with one another. And what they are doing is settling their grievances from the previous year. All the betrayals, all the frustrations, all the disappointments and disagreements and and anything else that has led to conflict between two women, two men, results in them settling those differences on Takanaki by fighting one another. Now, before we judge their culture for being so barbaric, what would they say about ours? Right? What would they say about the polarization that characterizes Western culture? The arena for us is social media. The audience is all of our friends and followers. We strike blows with our keyboards, and nothing ever gets resolved. We just dig deeper into our trenches and retreat further into our echo chambers. And unfortunately, life in the church can look little different. Takenakwe takes place over coffee, in the small group, over the phone, or behind the back. There are no fists, but there are words that are spoken in tones that are hushed, or accusatory, or concerned. And then of course there's the conflict in our homes the anger that is just below the surface between husband and wife between parent and child between siblings the harsh words that stir up strife the cold shoulders the pain the exhaustion takanaki real and metaphorical is exhausting and is painful And it leaves its participants wounded and scarred, sometimes for life. Is there a better way? This morning, we're starting a series on conflict resolution. And what I hope we'll see by the end of this series is that the best that this world has to offer comes nothing close to the biblical vision For conflict resolution biblical conflict resolution and the reconciliation that can by god's grace result is a window into the very heart of the gospel the reconciliation that god has accomplished through the cross of jesus christ between people who were his enemies the very people that jesus came to save and himself The Bible also tells us where to look first when it comes to conflict resolution. And that's the conflict that rages within so over the next eight weeks we'll do a deep dive into what the bible has to say about conflict resolution the series is uh you know based loosely on this book resolving everyday conflict the growth groups are going to be going through this book and so i want to encourage you to join a growth group if you're not in one these books will be available in the fellowship lodge after the service is over and i think you can also sign up for a growth group or learn more about them as well, So over the next eight weeks, we're going to work through that book. The book is great. It's very practical uh, when it comes to developing a, a greater heart for the gospel and a greater heart for conflict resolution. But this morning, we're going to do a deep dive into the heart. We're going to see that the thing that needs to be addressed first and foremost before any resolution can come in conflict is the cessation of the conflict within And so first, we're going to look at the root of human conflict. Second, this morning, we're going to look at God's grace for those in conflict. And then third, we're going to consider the downward path to conflict resolution. So the root of human conflict, God's grace for those in conflict, and then the downward path to conflict resolution. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to take these next eight weeks uh, to to do a, a deep dive, to explore more fully your vision for peace between your people, your vision for the kind of impact peace between your people can have in a culture that is at war with itself. Lord, that has been true in every age. It is true in our age. As well. Lord, I pray that you would expose in each one of us those areas where, where we are at conflict with you and consequently at conf, in conflict with other people. Lord, would you humble each one of us before you, that we might humble ourselves before one another and seek the peace that you, Lord Jesus, have purchased for us? And we ask this in your name, O Lord. Amen. All right, so first, the root of human conflict. James asked a question in verse 1. If you, you know, remember, you're, when you were a child, your mom or dad may have asked you the same question when you were fighting with one of your siblings. <laughs> right? What caused, why are you fighting? James asked the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, how might they have answered that question? And, you know, how, how might we want to answer that question. And you know, we may we may take the high road. You know, diversity, we're so different. You know, generations experience differences from the older to the younger generation. There are so many different cultures that make up our country and 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 different socioeconomic classes and there are just different priorities and diff- different just different desires and so there's there's conflict that exists. And that was true in the church uh, in in the New Testament, the church in which James was ministering, there was there's Jew and Gentile. There were various socioeconomic classes. There, you could know, take the high road. We're just different. That's why there's conflict. Or, you know, we could start to turn a little bit more selfish and say, people just don't understand. Specifically, people just don't understand me. If they understood me, then nobody would have a problem with me. There would be no conflict. Or people just misunderstand one another. You know, sometimes we talk right past one another. You remember the telephone game when we were kids, right? You know, whisper a sentence in somebody's ear, and then that person whispers it in the ear next to them, and by the time you get to the end of the circle, the last person says the sentence, and we see how it lines up with the first sentence that was whispered by the first person at the circle, right? People just misunderstand. That's why there's conflict. Or people don't do conflict well, People just don't have the skills that are needed. Or people haven't learned how to avoid conflict. Because, man, if you can avoid conflict, well, then there's no conflict. Or the reason may be the reason why I'm experiencing conflict is because of the person I'm in conflict with. That person makes me so mad. He or she just infuriates me. Well, James like our parents when we were younger, says, "Mm mm-mm, you're the problem. James says in the rest of verse 1, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, How in the world did he get to adultery? Well, because the root of human conflict is heart idolatry. The root of human conflict is heart idolatry. Competing desires are waging war within our hearts. That's what James is telling us in this These first few verses, passions are a war within you, you desire and do not have. These are not competing desires between you and the other person. This is ultimately a competing desire in your heart between what you want and what God wants. That's where the conflict begins. These desires take place, these competing desires take place within us when we are committing what the Bible refers to and what James is alluding to here, when we commit spiritual adultery. Now that idea of spiritual adultery or idolatry, the two ideas are synonymous in the Bible, happens whenever God's people who are called to him in order to have a relationship of love and devotion to him. Remember the Old Testament and New Testament, the image you get is of God being as a husband to his bride, his people. And whenever God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, and right here at 805 Blossom, whenever we turn in our hearts towards something other other than God, whenever we love something, some person more than God, we are committing spiritual Adultery, And so it absolutely makes sense that in a, in a passage in which James is talking about conflict between us, he kind of hits the high point or low point when he says, you're a bunch of adulterers, adulterers slash idolaters. That's the problem. The problem is that you desire something in your heart more than God. You've been called to him, to be devoted to Him, and yet you're devoting yourself to something else. There's a war that's going on within you, and that is a war to have something that has become for you an idol, something that has taken the place in your life of God, something that you've elevated in importance to being, of, to being what you need in any particular moment More than you think you need God in that moment. Now there's a a passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, You know what? Our your father in heaven, he loves you just like a good father loves his children. What kind of father, if a child came to him and said, Can I have some bread? would give that child a stone. Or if the child said, Can I have a fish? some fish, and that father would give him a a serpent or a snake. No good father would do that. When James says in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, what he's touching at there is our conflict with God over what we think we need. What we're doing in this moment is going to God in prayer saying, "God, I want what I think is bread, but is actually a stone. God, give me that stone." And Jesus is saying, "I'm not going to give you a stone. I want to give you bread. Give me that snake. I don't want to give you a snake. I want to give you fish. I want I want to give you what's good for you." And we say, "No, I want what I think is good for me." And there's conflict in our hearts. There's a war that's being waged Not between what I want and the other person wants, but between what I want and what God wants. So conflict at the horizontal level, conflict between people, is the bitter fruit that springs from the root of heart idolatry. It all starts in here. Conflict is the bitter fruit that springs from the root of heart idolatry. Conflict with God, as I already mentioned, and then conflict with other people. Because at that point where you are in conflict with God because you think that that you want something that is better than what God would have for you in that instance, the whole reason that's being exposed and coming to the surface is because of the occasion that is this disagreement or dispute with this other person. The conflict with the other person is just exposing what's going on in your heart. What's really going on there is that that person is getting in the way of something, that thing that you think you need in that moment more than you need God. Now, it's been a, it's probably been three or four years since I've used the hippo illustration. Some of you have been here that long and you're like, okay, I remember this one. Others of you haven't. Uh, I once heard a story, and and this, you know, it happens. You can probably Google it and read that it's happened more recently. But this was in 2005. It was a story about a, a woman who was on safari in Africa, and she was warned, don't go out at night, you know, and get between a hippo and the river because the hippo will trample you because you have gotten between the hippo and its source of life the river. And she did, and sadly, that's exactly what happened. And when I read that story in the news, I thought, uh, tragic, but wow, that is such a picture of what's going on spiritually in our hearts. Whenever anyone gets between me and whatever it is that I have set up as my source of life in any particular moment, I get angry because you're blocking me from what I think I need in any particular moment. The first question we need to ask whenever conflict arises at the horizontal level between your spouse, you and your children, you and your boss, or an employee within the church, the first question that we need to ask when we get angry is what is it I think I need right now that I'm not getting? What is my source of life right now? Is it that sense of feeling like, man, I'm a good parent? Then when your kids get between you and that source of life, which incidentally isn't a bad thing, it's just that you've made it an ultimate thing, you've made it a God thing. Whenever your child gets between you and that source of life, having a good reputation as a parent, then you don't move toward that child with grace and love. You move toward that child in anger because that child's gotten between you and its source of life, your source of life. The same is true when it comes to our you know, marriage relationships. The same is true so often when it comes to the conflict that exists within our church, within our workplaces, between friends. Anger is an indicator that someone, if it's sinful anger, that someone has gotten between you and whatever it is that you think you need in that moment more than Jesus. And that is a heart problem. That means, then, that we can't say, that person makes me so angry. It's more true to say, that person is exposing the anger that's in my heart. One of the things you'll read in uh, the Resolving Everyday Conflict book is that conflict is an opportunity. And you read that and you're like, oh, come on. But it is. It's an opportunity for you to grow. And ultimately, by God's grace, you know, it takes two to tango, but ultimately, by God's grace, perhaps reconciliation between you and that other person, but at a minimum, an opportunity for you to learn more about the sin in your own heart, the conflict that's waging in there, recognizing that the root is not the circumstance. The root is the idolatry, the competition, the war between what you want in that moment and what god would provide you and when we stop and think that so often what we want is the metaphorical stone when god would offer bread then we have to just sit back and say wow god help me god help me implication we don't need to change the other person when it comes to conflict oh man we want to take that approach don't we We're going to talk, you know, in a few weeks about getting the log out of our own eyes so we can deal with the speck in the eye of the other person. We are so quick to rush to that speck in the eye of the other person. The implication of what James is saying is that at the end of the day, it's not about changing the heart of the other person. That's impossible anyway. Only God can do that. Nor is it ultimately about getting the right technique for conflict resolution. That's good. I mean, hopefully we come out of this series with a a greater understanding of the biblical pattern for conflict resolution, but that's not going to be enough. That can just be used as a tool of manipulation if your heart isn't being addressed. At the end of the day, what we need is a new heart. And so, boy, isn't it good news that God offers grace to those who are in conflict. So let's look there a second. God's grace for those who are in conflict. God yearns for peace. Look at verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Again, remember, this is in the middle of a passage that's dealing with you know, warfare within people in the church, warfare in the heart that's resulting in warfare in the church. Christians who are disputing with one another, who are hurting one another. This passage, James is telling us right at the center of that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell within us. God is so passionate about church unity. God is so passionate about Unity between believers, unity within homes. He yearns for peace between people. Now, why? Why is that so important? Well, he created us to live at peace with one another. We can go back and do a, a, a biblical theology of reconciliation if we, if we had time. But just think back to the garden and the perfect peace that existed between Adam and Eve. And that was intended to exist in a, in a sinless world between the people that God had created, people created in his image, people who then consequently in relationship with one another were meant to reflect something of what it meant for God and God the Father, God the Son, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Spirit, God the Father, etc., to dwell in perfect unity within the very Godhead itself. Unity is God's will for his universe, for his people. Sin came in and destroyed that unity and the curse of God came with it, a curse that would ultimately lead to an opportunity for redemption. The curse that's so vividly displayed in the Tower of Babel. When the language of the people was confused and their their disunity led them to separate, to in a way flee from one another, and then that great vision in Revelation 5 and 7 of of, of Babel's curse reversed as people are dwelling together from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation around the throne, worshiping Jesus. But even now, in Christ, the, the dividing wall of, of, of hostility between, in the biblical sense, Jew and Gentile, but that dividing wall of hostility that would exist between people today is torn down in Christ. God yearns for unity between people, for peace. Jesus commands that his people live at peace with one another John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's an outward focus to this. This isn't just about God's people dwelling in unity together. This is about our witness in the world. Jesus prays that that will be the case in John 17, 23. He prays that we may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, Jesus is praying to his Father, and love them even as you loved me. The Apostle Paul actually commands us to fight for peace. In Ephesians 4:3, when he says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, that phrase, make every effort, is the kind of language that uh, the trainer of a gladiator would say to a gladiator. Like, fight really hard today to stay alive. Make every effort. To stay alive. Paul's using that same kind of language to say, make every effort, fight really hard, strive for unity. And then Paul extends that out to our relationships in the world as well in Romans 12:13 or 12.18, when he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This series on resolving everyday conflict, it isn't just about conflict resolution in our homes, between spouses and between parents and children and siblings. And it isn't just about conflict resolution that can happen in the church. It is about those things. And those things are central to the next thing I'm going to say, which is that by God's grace, this series, as, as we begin to take to heart more what the Bible says about living at peace with one another, We have an opportunity to be salt and light in a culture, our culture, that is at war with itself. At the heart of our witness is an opportunity to bear testimony to the power of God's grace in the hearts of people. God offers grace because he places such a high value on peace. He offers grace for those in conflict. He offers grace for those in conflict with one another. But don't forget that the grace he's offering in this passage is offered to those who are in conflict with him. He offers more Grace. He gives more grace, verse six. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud are those who have lifted themselves up against God. I know which way is best, God. The humble are those who have submitted themselves to his will. So God, you are God, I am not. I will trust you. The conflict that he first wants to grace us in is our conflict with him. The conflict that is raging within us. So third, the downward path to conflict resolution. The downward path. Later in this series, we're going to look at how we're called to to go high in conflict resolution. To seek higher ground. To seek to glorify God in our conflict resolution. First, I want to say we need to go low. Because I think that's what James is telling us in verses seven through 10. Let's read it together. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does James tell us it looks like to go low? Well, I think it looks like recognizing what's at stake, recognizing just how significant this battle for peace really is. Again, it's in the context of dealing with conflict between people and in the hearts of people that James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Implication being one of the ways in which the enemy is seeking to undermine the witness of the church and the health of the church is by sowing disunity within the church. We must take this seriously. This is an avenue, an angle by which Satan would attack and undermine the witness of the church, undermine the health of our relationships, undermine a marriage that's meant to sing and give glory to God, undermine relationships between parents and children that are meant to be a testimony to God's grace that can pass on to the next generation. Satan delights to see these points of of relationships, of potential health and grace undermined. And so we need to take this very seriously. That's what James is getting at when he says, "Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom." Don't have a light-hearted view of sin when it comes to relational strife. Take it seriously. Recognize what's at stake. What else does it mean to go low before going high? Submit yourself to God. That's what he says in verse seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In verse ten, humble yourselves before the Lord. Again, we're talking about heart idolatry. So James is saying, go beneath the surface of, you know what, I shouldn't have talked to that person that way. Go go beneath the surface to get to the point of saying, Lord, in that moment, I wanted to be right more than I wanted to be your child bearing witness to who you are. In that moment, I wanted to be seen as successful. I wanted to be seen as um, uh, 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 of having great you know, reputation. I wanted to be secure. I wanted to be comfortable. Instead, I needed to just want to be your person in that moment, seeking your will and not my own. Now we're humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves at the level of the heart and not just at the level of behavior. And then third, I think James is calling us to commit to bearing the fruit of reconciliation. When he says, cleanse your hands, this is middle verse eight, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He is saying, let your actions cleanse your hands and your motivations purify your heart, you double-minded be evident, bear evidence to the fact that real reconciliation has happened in your heart between you and God, that you might, out of that reconciliation, pursue reconciliation with other people. This is the downward path to conflict resolution. This is where conflict resolution has to start. It does not start first between you and the other person. It starts first between you and God. It starts first with recognizing that in those moments when you are angry, most often that anger is there because there's something that you think you need more than God and it's being denied. That other person is doing you a favor in that moment. It's not going to feel that way, but it really is an opportunity to recognize that your biggest problem is you. And step one to resolution of the conflict is acknowledging your warfare with God. What will compel us? What will motivate us? What will enable us? What will give us the power to do that? And the answer is recognizing how low Jesus is willing to go in order to reconcile you to God. Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that while we were yet enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now just think about how hard it is to reconcile with someone who doesn't want to reconcile with you. It's impossible. You don't have the power to change the heart of the other person. Guess who has the power to change your heart? God does. If you are a Christian, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, God has moved toward you while you were still running from him and he has given you a new heart in order to reconcile you to him and he did that at the cost of the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what you are worth to him. That's how much he wants to be reconciled with you. And the more we dwell on that, the more we see the ways in which we kick against God and push back and say, I want this, not that. And yet here's this God who will not turn away from us, whose love is steadfast, who will continue to pursue us even when we run from him. When you recognize that that is how God feels toward you. And the cross is the measure of what God has done to reconcile you to him. The more you dwell on that, the more you will be ready to igno- just say, here I am, Lord. Deal with me that I might be able to reflect your grace and mercy in my relationships with other people. That's where conflict resolution must begin. The result can be powerful. The result really can be powerful. It can be powerful on a global scale. This happened. This happened in the early 1900s. In 1907, on a Saturday night in Pyongyang, which is now North Korea, a group of Christian men got together and they were praying. They were repenting. They were repenting of the ethnic strife that existed, the hatred that existed in their hearts between them and the Japanese. Long, long history of strife. And they were saying, Lord, let reconciliation start with me. And as they confessed their sin and prayed long into the night, revival broke out. There was a time when missionaries would refer to Pyongyang as the Jerusalem of the East. So strong was the church and the work of the church in the surrounding culture, in the form of hospitals and colleges. God used a burden for reconciliation that began with people confessing the sin in their hearts. And and for a season, in that place, things changed. And we can't even begin to calculate the, the impact of the, the missionaries that went out from that place into different parts of Asia and ultimately the world to carry the witness of the gospel and the power of reconciliation. It can change the world. It can change churches. Many of us were raised in churches. I was raised in a church where it, it seemed like people who liked the pastor sat on one side of the church and people who didn't like him sat on the other. It can, it's almost a caricature How churches can split over the silliest of things. Organ or piano, drums or no drums, suits and ties or jeans and t-shirts. Man, what can happen when a church dwells together in unity, when they push through conflict, recognizing that on the other side of that conflict is a relationship that will bear greater testimony to the power of the gospel than it did before? And then reconciliation that can happen in families that doesn't just impact that generation but can bear fruit for generations to come. Unity is worth fighting for. By God's grace, let us be people who pursue peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be with us. Lord, I... I, just have a feeling that over the next eight weeks, there's gonna be things that are stirred up in our hearts, in our relationships with one another, in our homes. Lord, I pray that that would be something that bears great fruit to your glory. Lord, that as we are willing to finally face things, perhaps, that we've been running from for a long time, as we're willing to start with our own hearts and then move toward other people, following the, the patterns that you lay out for us in Scripture, really seeking that your name would be glorified and willing to get the log out of our own high and and willing to work together on lasting solutions, all the things that we're gonna see as we study this, uh, study the word and then study this book through our growth groups deeper together. Lord, I, I just pray that you would do a work here at Grace Church, a work in our homes, ultimately a work in our country as Christians come together in unity and seek to live as people of peace in a culture at war with itself.